Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to Gospel Saving Church. Praise God, I'm so glad you're here. I hope that you did not come to this church today, or I hope that you did not come to YouTube or SoundCloud or wherever you're tuning into us from to be entertained. We are not supposed to... Newsflash, okay? Unlike the world and what they think of going to church and how the world has crept into the church and how the church has, has accommodated the world and coming into the church, we are not supposed to come to church. You are not supposed to come to church. I'm not supposed to come to church for any entertainment at all. I'm not an entertainer. No pastor is supposed to be an entertainer. You're not supposed to want entertainment unless... You're of the great falling away, as Paul, I believe, wrote to Timothy, and you want your ears tickled. And this is the end days, and that may be you. And if that's you, you've tuned in to the wrong place, because I do not entertain people. Praise God. If this is your first time here, or you're a repeat, you know who I am and how what I'm about. I'm Pastor Ed, and this is Gospel Saving Church, one of God's true churches of these last days. And this is our weekly broadcast of truth from God's Word. We always start with a word of prayer because the Word says, and this is how I live my life, this is my authority in my life. The Word is the authority of my life. I hope it's the authority of your life. The Word says that we can't understand the things of God apart from the Spirit of God. So let's pray and let's ask God to help us understand His Word by His Holy Spirit so that we can actually get the things that God's telling us today and not just sit through another sermon and going, Oh, is it over yet? Let's pray, because the things of God, if you're a Christian, should be exciting to you. Lord, thank you so much for bringing us here, God. Thank you so much for, uh, Lord, your word and all the promises, Lord, in your word. God, the only thing this earth promises to us, Lord, is death, Lord God. It, it It may hold up a few shiny trinkets. Lord God, that we people really run for, the majority run for, and they live their lives for, and that's their idol. But Lord, th- that those trinkets go away because every day we're getting old and every day we're heading toward death. We can't even keep those trinkets forever, Lord God. But your word offers us eternal life. Lord, your word offers, offers us promises, Lord God, precious promises of provision and, and help in times of need and, 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 a, and a great wall that we can lean on, Lord God, to grow, Lord, and have, and have support and be supported and, and be counseled and go for counsel, Lord, was that's all in you. God, thank you so much for all your precious promises, Lord God, that you give us in your word. We love you and we praise you. And we thank you, Lord God. Help us to understand your word today by your spirit. Give us, as I prayed a little earlier, give us eyes to see and ears to hear, Lord. Help us to not shut our eyes and help us to not close our ears, Lord God. And help us to understand the things that you have to say to us by your Holy Spirit, Lord God. Please, God, because we want to know. Thank you, Lord God. And we ask all these things in the only way possible Lord God, your word says there's only one way we can come to you, and that's through Jesus Christ. So, Lord, we come to you through Jesus Christ only, because he's the only way. Lord, and we ask these things in the precious and powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, our title of our new sermon today is Relief to the Brethren. Simple title, right? Relief to the Brethren. And we will be in Acts eleven twenty seven through 30 today. And I'll give you a moment in your Bibles to get there before we read this section and start our study. And you can do that right now or you can just listen along. Um, as I'm taking this break, as I'm getting ready to teach, I just want to, you know, just inform you FYI. There's been a little change that's come from above. There will be no more five to ten minute long overviews. God has changed my heart in that. He wants me to spend more time in the sermon and in the meat of the word that we have for this week rather than going back to last week and going on about 10-15 minutes. So we're going to be very short little quick overviews, very almost none really, and we're going to be focusing on this week's message. So praise God. If you're there, we're ready to go. I'm ready to go. Acts 11, 27 through 30. Let's read it and let's get to our new study. Acts eleven twenty seven says this. And in these days, prophets, that's important, came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the spirit that there was going to be a great famine 
throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So, last week we had a really neat study about two awesome aspects of the last sentence of verse 26. Remember that last sentence that we studied last week? And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Those two awesome aspects were, one, the awesome honor they gave these Hellenists, these outcast Hellenists, these that had been outcast completely by the traditional Jews, that they were the first ones, even above the apostles of Christ, to get the title of Christian. Wow, what an honor. And number two, the fact that these unbelievers in Antioch saw the lives of the Hellenists, along with Saul of Tarsus and Barnabas, and then called them by the glorious title of Christians. For why? They didn't just get that title because, oh, well, you know, it was just the cliche thing to do. They got that title because they earned it. Praise God. Today, as we just read over in verse 27, once again, that verse again, and in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. We see that Barnabas and Saul are still in Antioch. The church is now close to one year old. We can make the jump here that these prophets came from the church in Jerusalem, the one where the original apostles still were, to the new church that was planted in Antioch, where many Hellenists, remember, had turned to the Lord for salvation. Why can I say, how, how, Pastor Ed, how can you say that they came from one church to another church? How can I say that? Well, because, newsflash, another one here for us, that's just what real Christians do. They don't just act as lone wolves going from person to person. They are united as many in the body of Christ in the church. And not only do I say that, you may be thinking, well, isn't that kind of objective, you know, or a subjective according to you? I said, yeah, it may be. But I also have proof, right? The evidence that they came from one church to another goes back, you can look down to verse 29 and 30, where it tells us that Barnabas and Saul went back to the brethren, that the people there, the Hellenists in Antioch, took their thing, took what they came for, back to the brethren in Judea and the elders in Judea. Well, where are elders? Are elders just random people that are just in all those, all my elders down there, the elder, you know, so-and-so down there in house, you know, 1516 uh, Waddle Street? No. Elders are found in a church, and they're the pastors. They're the leaders of a church. So these guys came from one church to another church, and they would have especially done this because they had to handle some specific business that the Lord Jesus Christ sent them there for. You know, for a specific purpose, as God just doesn't send his kids to any random places for any wasteful reasons. What business did God send these prophets to Antioch for? Well, we'll look at that in a bit, but first, before we do, I must make a point here that that is made for some confusion and a point that maybe you had always overlooked, but it's right there. And I I love those when God shows me these gold nuggets that that are like, wow, I never saw that before because I never saw this one point until this study. Notice that that verse 27 just said that these people of God that came from the Jerusalem church to the Antioch church were called prophets. Why is this noteworthy? And what's the confusion about it? Well, these disciples of Jesus Christ that were part of the church in Jerusalem who were not the original 11 apostles are just called prophets. Luke calls them prophets. Why is this a point? (laughs) Because... Some today don't believe that God's kids can still have the title of prophet, evangelist, or apostle, stating that these titles, these offices, were were only for Christ's original apostles and and only for his chosen twelve. Yet, this this is super important, yet, our scripture here just called these regular disciples prophets. What? They had the title of a prophet, meaning that God still does grant specific offices to people, even the offices he granted to the original followers of Jesus Christ, you know, like the apostles Peter, James, John, Matthew, you know. Another example of this idea, apart from the original apostles, apart from those who were saw Jesus Christ's ministry from the first to the last, would be our example of uh, a man that we have here in our scripture, his name is Saul. 
right? Well, what's so important about Saul? Well, he became the Paul who became the great apostle Paul as we move on in, in the book of Acts. This same Saul who becomes Paul calls himself apostle all throughout the New Testament. Just one example for time's sake. 1 Corinthians 1, 1. Paul, he says, this is his hymn writing, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. Saul, Paul, was not an original apostle. He did not see Jesus Christ's ministry from the first to the last. He was a Pharisee. He still is a Pharisee, actually, but he was not viewing and watching all the different details of Christ's ministry from the first to the last. Yet, he, God, God Almighty himself, it just says, Paul just says, by the will of God, he gave Paul the office of apostle, which is why to like kind of cap the point here, that's why Saul slash Paul makes a huge makes the huge point that he does in Ephesians four eleven through twelve, and he says this, and he himself, speaking of God, gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors, some to be teachers, and these are all titles. These are all offices that God gave His people for verse twelve for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now, if you're like me, I really hope that you are, because this is how the Bible says that we should be. What was written in the Bible almost 2,000 years ago is still applicable for us today. Okay, The Bible isn't getting phased out by our taboo customs and our cultures and our world. Or, oh, well, because I just don't feel that that's what the, really, the Bible is really saying. You can't do that. What the Bible said then is what the Bible is saying to us now. If the Bible says that the Bible was written to Christians, for Christians, to help us understand God, help us understand the things of God. And so what we have here is we have Ephesians 4, and we have what, what happened to Saul coming to Paul. We have this being God's word for all Christians for all time until when? Well, let me, let me think. Until when? Oh, that's right. Until Christ comes back. That's what we have God's word for. And his word applies to every Christian then, today, and even until Christ comes back. Which makes what Paul writes to us, God giving the specific offices of these titles to his kids for, as Ephesians 4 told us, the building up of his children in his church again, even today. That goes for today, yesterday, and tomorrow, and until the end. This is what the Bible says. Christians, if we are really Christians, we must take the Bible as our ultimate authority and not our own opinion. What does that mean? What does that look like? Sir, ma'am, what I'm saying to you is, if our opinion or our belief doesn't hold up to what the Bible says, and then we find out that we're wrong, what that means is, is that we need to change. God's word is the same. God is the same. It never changes. He never changes. What the Bible says is what the Bible says. If we don't like it, it's our problem. That's not God's problem. If we don't like it, we got to change, not God. So if we're really Christians, if our opinion is wrong and God's word is right, then we have to change our opinion to the truth of the word of God if we really do love Jesus Christ. All right, now getting back to our text, let's continue to move on. So God sends some disciples of Christ that he also gave the office of prophet to from the church in Jerusalem to the church in Antioch for some specific business. What business did God send them there for? Look at verse 28. Read, let's read it again. Then one of them, notice <laughs> one of them means that there were more than just one. <laughs> I love that little nugget God showed me right there. It wasn't just one prophet God sent from the Jerusalem church. It was multiple Christian prophets that God sent. Then one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine. Now, that means that there's a huge area of the world that what's going to not have food. Their crops are going to die. There's a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. So, 
God sends these Christian prophets to Antioch, which was part of Syria at the time. This was Antioch. Today, Syria is no longer Antioch. Today's uh, Antioch is modern-day Turkey. But then it was modern-day Syria, right? To tell prophetically those in the church in Antioch that there, were, there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world. Or, as you look up this, all the world, and as you look up this uh, uh, famine, it really rather contextually, according to the Greek and all of that, and all of the definitions and everything, really it wasn't through the whole world, and I'll explain that in a minute, but it was through the region of Judea that was under the Roman rule. How do we know contextually that the famine was not over the whole face of the earth? Well, Antioch, as I just said, current-day Turkey, is only about 760 miles north of Jerusalem and the region of Judea. And what happens here? God sends prophets to tell them that there's going to be a great famine, which means that they had provision and there was no danger or information of those in Antioch, which was not even 800 miles away to the north, uh, that they were going to go through the great famine because God was sending them there telling them that the churches in Judea and in the area of Judea was going to have a great famine. For again, God sent his prophets to go there to attain some relief for those that were going to go through this great famine. And anyway, what does history show us? More, even more than anything, what does history show us? Because words in Greek, you gotta got to understand, one word, just like English, can have many different definitions. Many. There's multiple, and you got to look, and for the definition of the Greek, you have to look to the context. It's not just always, well, one word one means one thing. It, all, it means context. What is the whole scripture saying? So in this particular section, the whole world means the whole kind of Roman, Judean ruled world by the Roman authority. Anyway, history shows us that the great famine is recorded by Josephus, and it did indeed happen during the reign of Claudius Caesar and in the region of Judea. In fact, there were uh, recorded three different famines that happened under the rule of Claudius at three different times during his reign and his rule. The one mentioned in our scripture today happened about 45 AD. So this was the prophets were coming to tell them that there was going to be a great famine. It probably wasn't far away, but they weren't there yet. So our, our, if you were wondering, well, when was this scripture that we were reading? And actually, this blew my mind earlier this week. I was telling my wife. I said, just let's do the math here. When I was actually studying this one section here, I said, think about it. Christ died in 33 AD. We've only gone through 11 chapters of Acts, which now it's Acts chapter 11. We're getting to the end of Acts chapter 11. And we're already almost to 45 AD. That's roughly 33, 40. That's almost 12 years. They might have been in the 11th year. Maybe it was going to happen soon. Can you believe we've, we've gone through almost 12 years since Christ died in 11 chapters of Acts? Doesn't that just blow your mind? It's like, what? Like, I, I know in the Old Testament, when you go from one, uh, Genesis 32, whatever the last verse is, to Genesis 33, the verse 1, that there can be 20-year gap. And God showed me that years ago. But here, it blew my mind to find out that, wow, you mean 11 chapters of Acts? I've already been almost 12 years since Christ died. It blows my mind. It seems like the things you read in Acts are boom, 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 boom. They happen like right away. But no, just understand we're almost 45 or uh, AD here. So this uh, famine did happen and it did indeed center in Judea, which was the region which the Jerusalem church was in, as well as also other churches that had you know formed there. Josephus indicates sadly in his writings this, this famine was indeed very severe and that there were many that died because of it. I, I hate death. I just hate death, right? I can't wait until God does away with death. That's what the Bible promises. That, that's another promise that I was speaking about earlier, how God's word's full of promises. Yes, God's word says that one day we shall see death no more. Death will not be a, it'll be a thing of the past. It'd be gone. Praise God. Anyway, so, so getting back here. So basically here, God was letting these Hellenist disciples in the church in Antioch and others that had joined them by now, God was letting them know by the Christian prophets that came from Jerusalem church that the church in Jerusalem, as well as all the other churches in Judea, would be in need uh, of some provision to get through this famine. They would need relief. Get it? Hint, hint, hint. It's in the message to the title. They would need relief. Pretty reasonable for Christians, though, I'd say, right? I mean, pretty reasonable, right? Christians have a problem. 
Go to Christians, tell them about the problem. This is the kind of thing that God has called his kids to do right. I mean, amen? Amen? I mean, you bet your bottom dollar it is, right? Well, well Pastor, how do you say that? Well, well, I say that because the Apostle John speaks by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In 1 John 3, 16 17, he says this, By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. It was noticed that's tangible. He didn't just say the word love. In Islam, Allah says in the Quran he loves them a lot. But never one time does he actually show his love for them. Isn't that crazy? But God here, he shows us his love, right? And he goes on, and we also ought to lay down our lives for our brethren. Verse 17, but whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? And of course, Paul, even though the apostle, the, 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 Gospels and stuff may have just been written shortly. Who knows if they knew, but God was teaching Paul. And Paul knew these things, or Saul, I should say. And Saul then, they remember, they were together for a year, and they were teaching them these things. And of course, they would have known this by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. James also chimes in on this. James 2, 14 through 17. What does it profit, my brethren? If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can faith save him? If a brother or a sister, notice that said brother or sister, is naked and destitute of daily food, and when one of you says to them, depart in peace and be warmed and be filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? It doesn't profit anything, of course, because you didn't show real love for them. You just told them you love them, like Allah does to his people in the Quran, but you don't do anything to love them. That's not real love. Often in, in my house, here and again, I, when I'm talking to one of my sons, I go, my boy, how, do I love you? Well, yeah, daddy, yeah, you love me. How do you know I love you? Well, you tell me. Little man, is that the only way you know I love you? Well, well, no. I love it. That's the part I'm longing to hear because that's what I, I, I don't strive to be a, I love you in word only. And he goes, well, you love me because you go to work and you give me hugs and you give me kisses and you do this and you do that. Well, yes, that's biblical love. Biblical love is when you do something to show people that you love them, not just say that you love them. Thus he finishes off, James 2, 7, verse 17, Thus also faith by itself, it, if it does not have works, is dead. And this is exactly the situation that was about to arise in the Judean churches. The churches there and the brethren there in the Judean churches were about to go through a terrible famine. No food, and then it wasn't like they could run down to the local grocery store and just pick up some food. They, if there was no food and the crops didn't grow and there was no rain and there was a famine, that meant no life. It wasn't as simple as it is today. Oh, well, this one region's struggling. Well, we'll just, you know, we'll just send, you know, we'll just go, we'll just ship food in from, you know, on the, on the semi and we'll just bring in truckloads of food, you know, like they do to all these countries that are, you know, they, they have all these terrible uh, natural disasters happen. What does America do? Always America. Always America, what do we do? We send food over. We send food over. Well, it wasn't quite that easy back then. No food. If no food, no life. And so they needed relief so that they could continue to live and so they could continue to serve the Lord. This re relief that they would have needed would have consisted of both things like unground grain, which could have been stored in like warehouses and barns and silos and stuff, and of course money. Now, you may be saying to yourself, now, Pastor, I understand they needed some grain and stuff, but why would they have needed money? You can't eat it. Well, because in a famine, people can travel a reasonable distance to another land, as these prophets, remember, came 760 miles to Antioch to get this relief, right? They can travel to other lands that don't, aren't in a famine, and they can buy the food necessary to survive if that food is not in their own land. Either way, God's Judean churches were going to need relief, and God showed those in the church of Antioch their soon-to-be need and gave them a chance to love God by being obedient to Him and to show love for their fellow Christian soldiers, giving a sign of tangible love in the form of real-life monetary relief. Praise God for God. Praise God for God. He knows how to take care of those that are His own. Doesn't He? 
Amen. Praise him and loud him, as one of the psalmists says in the Psalms. Loud him. That means get loud, get, get, just, just get crazy for praising the Lord, right? All of us, his saints. Now, getting back, what was the response of those newly converted babes in Christ, those who were formerly these outcast Hellenists? Look at verse 29. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined, that means that they said in their hearts, let's do it. They determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. Praise God that these Christian brothers and sisters who had faced so much bigotry and hatred. Remember, we talked about that several, couple, few weeks back. We talked about that. How much bigotry that these Christian, these Hellenists had faced from, from even, remember, the Christian evangelist traditionalist, traditionalist Jews who, who they don't repay evil for evil and they follow God's word and his Holy Spirit and they decide and they set in their hearts to send relief to the Christian brethren in Judea according to what they could give or what they could afford. Uh, they get the opportunity to send relief which is an honor from God. Did you know that serving God is an honor? Some people, oh, I got to serve God today. Oh, man, I got to serve God today. And I'm not going to lie. Sometimes I've been there. But God slaps me upside of the head. Didn't you know, boy, it's an honor to serve me. I don't just call everyone. I I, I call those whom I know. I, I call them, and it's an honor. To serve me. It's a privilege to serve me. I'm like, oh man, praise you, God. You're right. And, and so these guys, these, these formerly outcast Hellenists, they honor God and honor and love the disciples and give the finances, grain, or whatever they needed to give that they could, uh, which is what God desires from his kids. This is what God desires. Be willing to give what you can. God loves when we're willing vessels. People I've talked to about ministry, they say, well, I can't you know, do this or, or do that for God because I'm not able. Well, God's not looking for the person that's able, folks, because none of us is able to serve God. Not one of us is able to serve God. He just wants a willing vessel. If you are willing to do what God says, then he will make the way for you to do whatever it is that he's asking you to do. Wow. So how did they send the love offering? Because that's what we'll call it. We'll call it a love offering. Uh, Did they send it by Western Union, maybe? Wait, 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 hold on. Maybe they sent it by bank transfer. You know, electric electric transfer. You know, they went into their internets and they went on their laptops and they were like, you know, uh, here, here, click of a button and we'll just you know, give us your account number. And I'm sorry. No, they didn't have any of those tools at their disposal. And, and they did it the only technological way that they could have. Look at verse 30. How I said before, remember, that this was all from church to church or church to churches. It wasn't lone wolves just out there. I'm a lone wolf and I'm out there just serving God. I'm a one-man soldier for God's army. No, not quite. Read verse 30. This they also did and sent it to the elders. <laughs> Again, <laughs> in the world, the guy down the street, he's not an elder unless he's actually an elder in a church. An elder is a position in the church. It's not just some random dude that just called himself elder. It's a position in the church. They also did and they sent it by, to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So they, they, they shipped it off, Paul and Barnabas go, they get the stuff, and then, then they go eventually and they give it to the elders of the church who then separated it out through the rest of the, all the churches in Judea. Scripture doesn't seem to indicate that Saul and Barnabas left immediately. As I said earlier, the, the famine just wasn't like five minutes from now, right? What a prophecy, right? Oh, five minutes from now, there's going to be, you know, this was probably maybe six months out, maybe a year out. I don't know. But again, we're right around 43, 44 AD here. 45 AD, remember, was when the famine was coming. But we do read them going, and, and we'll, we'll read about that later in, in Acts as we keep going on. Because I'm sure it took the brethren in Antioch, the new, you know, the ex-outcast Hellenists, some time to actually get the stuff together, right? 
So on the side, there's two sides to, to look at what happened here. There's, there's a couple different things about that I want to kind of not, not close with, but a couple more things that I want to talk about here before we get done with our message. On the side of the glorious generosity of the former outcast Hellenists toward their new Christian brethren, it is absolutely breathtaking and humbling to me. It's humbling to me that they don't repay evil for evil. Remember, some Christian Jewish evangelists had come to Antioch from Jerusalem after the persecution of Saul, but they only preached to the Jews, and that text meant contextually that that was the traditional Jews. Because remember, Hellenists were Jews, but they weren't traditional Jews. They didn't keep the traditions of the Jews. And in verse 19, is where this is the same chapter. This is, this is a year. We got a year, basically, from verse 19 to now. This is basically a year, or roughly a year, right, of 19 of this chapter. And, and remember, even these Christian Jews from, from the Judean churches were bigoted, just even within the last year, against these same Hellenists. And yet they still, they still, they put aside the, the, the hatred and malice that was shown toward them, and they show love. Even they forget, which means that they forgave. They forgave the, the brethren for coming there and not holding a grudge against them because basically if the evangelists had left, they were going to be going back to Jerusalem. So, so the Hellenists knew, well, we're going to send relief back. Well, we're going to, I'm sure, this, I'm sure somebody brought it up. You do realize, guys, that these were the same Christians that came from Jerusalem that they were like treating us like the Jews did, like, you know, non-saved Jews. Well, you know, and I'm sure there was a brother that stand up. Maybe it was even Barnabas. Well, you know, brothers, God says that we forgive. You know, and if we can't forgive one another, you know, then how can he forgive us? So I'm sure there was even some commotion about that that we don't read about. But nevertheless, they put away the malice and the hatred that, would, that those Christians had had toward them and these formerly outcast Hellenists, now converts to Christ, within a year, they're just babes in Christ. Well, they're not even a year old. They show expert, tangible love for their Christian brethren, some of the same ones, again, that were bigoted against them, and they send the relief that they could. Wow! Uh, for this love, I give them a wow, all caps! I really do. And so again, on that side, I give them all caps. I, personally, I give them all caps now. And I'll even throw in some pretty gold stars for that matter. For that's for me because I know how hard it is to really truly forgive somebody. And for that forgiveness to actually come to tangible love, like the tangible love of giving my things that I own to these people that were just hypocrites less than a year ago. Dude, that's some tangible love. That's some real love. To love someone that betrayed you, to love someone that was bigoted against you, and to help them out with tangible love, that's like, makes my mind explode. That's love and forgiveness that the world could never know. That kind of love and forgiveness. There's, there's no way the world's like scratching their head going, huh? You did what? You To who? Huh? Wow. And from God, praise God. I don't know if they knew this yet. I mean, the scriptures are long and extensive, but God, from God, they really earned some awesome treasure in heaven. Remember Jesus, Matthew 6, store up your treasures in heaven where moth and rust and thief not break in and steal. And well, what do you think they're doing here? They're, they're being obedient to God, but God's like, your obedience gets you treasure. It's one gets the other. That's not, shouldn't be the heart behind why we serve God, but that is something that we can look forward to if we serve God, if we surrender more to God, if we give those to things that God wants us to do, boom, boom, cha-ching, cha-ching, it's, it's going off in heaven. The, the, our, our little house that God's given us is just filling up with the treasures of God because that's what Jesus Christ promised. And, and so, that, dude, these guys are blessed. And, and so I don't want to by any means sweep away their awesome tangible love that they showed because I believe scripturally, as the Bible says, Jesus Christ would have every one of his kids to do the same thing today. Those that are truly his with the brethren, that is. Amen. On that note, Christians, if you do have opportunity to help another Christian in a tangible, loving, awesome way, even financial way, with another true brethren of the faith of Christ, other true born-again believers, then you should absolutely do this. For this is one of God's wills 
for you. Absolutely, that's what Scripture says. Remember James, James 2, 14 through 16. What does it profit my brother? And if someone says he has faith but not has work, but does not have works, can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? So without you actually putting, I'll put, I'll say it this way, your money where your mouth is, or your goods where your mouth is, and actually helping out a brother or sister in Christ that's in need, and you have it, then really he says here, it does not profit. What he's really saying is, is your, your love is worthless. It's not real love at all. That's really what he's saying there. So, so Christians... God desires us to be generous as these newly converted Hellenists. Think of it. Just a year old babes in Christ. Wow. As as they example for us here in this scripture today. Now, again, I don't want what I'm going to say next because that was only one point that I had to kind of really drive home that God put on my heart. But I and I don't want this point to overshadow what I just said, because really, these guys ought to be the superstars of our scripture today. They, they really should be. These guys should be like, wow, you know, give, give honor to them. Not glory. glory. Glory is due to God alone. But give honor to them and you know what? Follow their footsteps. It would be my advice. You're reading the scripture. You're wanting to follow God in a more intimate way. Do what these guys did and act like they did because these guys are on point. Now, not to overshadow, but there is one more huge thing that God showed me in this section of scripture. Maybe one that, like me, you might have kind of overlooked as you're reading the scripture. Because, as it's kind of like before, there's one more point in this scripture that I got to make that I didn't even see until actually I started studying on it until God showed it to me. What is it you say? If God had granted the extreme prosperity and financial wealth that Abraham had obtained from the Lord to these churches in Judea that were about to go through this great famine that those of the health and wealth movement claim today that they would have had and that they say every true believer in Christ Jesus should have even today, then why would the Judean churches have needed any relief at all? Very interesting, right? Uh, Seriously, when we look at it with logic, they would have been able to have some finances enough to go to other regions and buy whatever relief that they would have needed to make it through the famine, and they would have had no need for any relief at all from anyone. How do I deduce these things? Because, you know, I'll tell you right now, as I just told you earlier, God showed it to me. I had never seen this before in the scripture. God showed it to me. But, you know, on that note, we must be careful because you know why? And I hold myself to the same standards as everybody else that I hear teach the word of God. Everybody says God shows them things in scripture. Everybody says that, right? So how do I know what God showed me is really truth and really what God shows? And in the screen, you know, how do I know that? Well, I have contextual and justifiable proof. And this proof that I present to you today, that I'm about to present to you today, shows us that they really wouldn't have had any need for any relief had it been for if they had the kind of wealth that Abraham did, proving the churches in Judea weren't wealthy and were actually struggling financially. Where, you say? Well, Got to be in the Bible. I'm big on if it's real, got to show it to me in the Bible. Can't just come out of your butt with it. You can't just say this or that or whatever. You got to put your money where your mouth is. You got to show it to me in the Bible. So where is it? Well, one time you may have heard of a little story about this man named Joseph. Right? little man named Joseph. And he was one of 12 sons of a great man of God. One of the descendants of Abraham, actually. His name was Jacob. And that was, you know, Abraham's dad, Jacob. Well, it just so so happens, it turns out, that uh, Jacob was a very wealthy man. Jacob was very wealthy. I mean, like super, 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 one of the richest men in all the area, all the region, kind of like Abraham, kind of like Isaac. Well, in his days, when one of his 12 sons, Joseph, had been sold into Egypt at this time by his brothers, how they sold him up the river, Jacob did something that makes my point for today because there was a famine in his day. 
Well, did he ask for relief from his neighbors because of the famine was so severe? Not quite. Uh, actually, he sent his 10 kids, the same ones that sold Joseph up the river, with bags full of money to Egypt to buy food because he had heard that Egypt had grain. This all starts out in Genesis chapter 41. If you want to, I encourage, please, by the way, because I'm going to make a thrust to us here, kind of toward the end here. Please check out the things that I say. Don't just take my word or for something that you think I might be saying that you're, go check it out. Please go check it out. Because you know what? I don't want to be these other preachers today that make all these claims, but then you go to the Bible and you're like, well, if you just read the verse before and the verse after, well, that, wow, they just took that scripture completely out of context. So you can go and for yourself and check out Genesis chapter 41. And it goes like 41, 42, 43. Actually, I was just so blown away this week as I was looking this weekend. Jacob really had some real estate in the Bible. He had, a really, he had some really powerful real estate. I mean, he's one of those. Sometimes in the Bible, you, got, you get a character or one of the ancient Bibles, and they get maybe like half a chapter. Sometimes they get one line. Jacob got chapters. Okay, that's pretty powerful. God's, God's given us some wisdom there. If Jacob had chapters, we ought to probably go and look at Jacob's life. Anyway, starting in Genesis 41, listen to these scriptures of the event and the justifiable proof that I have to the point that I'm making about the churches in Judea at this time. Genesis 42, 1 through 2. When Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, Jacob said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Indeed, I've heard that there's grain in Egypt. Go down to that place and buy for us there. I don't read of any prophets coming to any of his friends. Oh, Jacob and his family, they're starving because there's, there's famine in the land. You, you need to help them. We, we don't read about one prophet going to any of Jacob's family members. They lived all, all over the place, really. A big family, Abraham, Isaac, you know, that kind of big family. And we don't read about any prophet. And he says, go down to us there and buy for us there that we may live and not die. Skip down to verse 25. Uh, we read of this, that they came with bags of money. Then Joseph gave a command to fill their sacks with grain to restore every man's money to his sack. Because, see, they had gone there. They, Joseph had realized who they were. They didn't know it was Joseph. They gave the money. They got the grain. But then Joseph, in order to get an occasion against them, because he was kind of like, he was wanting to get them back for selling them up the river. He, he went ahead and put all their money back in their bags so that they, he would have an occasion to arrest one of them. He really wanted to know if Benjamin, I, I, I don't mean to be getting too much into the story because that's not really my thrust of this sermon because I could talk about the Bible all day long. If those who know me, they know that. But anyway, skip down to verse 35. Each man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when their father saw the bundles, notice bundles, not just one, bundles of money, in his sack, uh, right? Uh, I'm sorry. And his father saw the bundles of money. They were afraid. Then you skip forward to Genesis 43, 12. And he says this because yeah, they had gotten back with all the grain. They had gotten back with all the, the stuff. And then they realized, wow, we're out of food again. Wow, the famine's not over. We got to go back. So they're like, but we can't go back because this man said this. And he goes, here, 43, 12. Take double money in your hand and take back in your hand the money that was returned in, your mouth, in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. You see, Jacob was very wealthy. God had allowed him to get his uh, start from his wicked uncle Laban, who tried to use him for evil. And when there came a famine after he had left Laban, way after, God didn't have the prophets again send for him to others or his friends or his family to go tell them that Jacob and his sons and his family were going to go through a terrible famine. And, you know, they needed some relief. Jacob had lots of money, the kind of, uh, the kind of money uh, that the health and wealth crowd say what Abraham did, which he did, and the kind that the you know, health and wealth crowd say that every Christian today, including the churches in Judea, would have had. And yet Jacob, he just sent his money and bags full of money to Egypt to go buy the provisions that he, he and his family were in need of to get through that famine. So now... I make the point again. If the Judean churches even had the money that Jacob had, why would they have needed relief from anybody? They wouldn't. God's wisdom would have said, 
hey, send a few of your send a few of the faithful, the you know, servants of the Lord, and send them up to Antioch and have them buy some food for us. Obviously, Antioch wasn't going through a famine at that time. Yet, the very fact that God sent prophets there to tell them of this thing was God prompting them to be a blessing. You know, hey, we need help. They're going to need help. So why would a rich and wealthy and super, super Abrahamic covenant, super wealthy church need the help of some outcast Hellenists that are 800 miles away? Unless they weren't as wealthy as what these one sect of believers of Christianity, they believe today. It's really, really sad. But it's really, it's simple logic. And I love it. I love it, I love it. In comparison in our world today, if there are a great famine in our world today, do you think that Bill Gates or Donald Trump would need help or relief from anyone in order to feed their families or even their churches that they attend? <laughs> that's a joke. Now, that's, that's actually funny. Uh, absolutely not. They would send a delegate or one of their workers to go to other country that they had food that, that were not in any kind of famine and have all kinds of food shipped in. And they and their families and probably their churches would still eat like kings. And if these Judean churches had the Bill Gates, Donald Trump, Abraham, Jacob kind of money that those of the health and wealth persuasion say that they had, then they would not have had any need to receive any relief as charity from anyone. They would have just sent their people to other regions that weren't in famine, like those you know, prophets went to Antioch and, and bought enough food to feed themselves and their congregations and really even part of their own city. As Christians are generous and we're supposed to be generous and supposed to be loving and helpful to even those that are around us, right? The prodigal, or uh, Jesus said of the, of the Good Samaritan, right? We're supposed to be loving and helpful even to those that aren't saved, right? Uh, now this all proves <laughs> that God does not have some special Abrahamic financial covenant that he gives to all his Christian kids guaranteed even today. This is a wicked and unhealthy and evil doctrine that people have come up with now. If this first century Christian church was not wealthy and they struggle financially, why should we, his same Christian kids today, expect... 100% guaranteed every one of us are supposed to be wealthy like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were wealthy. We can't. Now, if God blesses us that way, praise God. That's God's goodness. He has a reason for it. Praise God. But I don't see anywhere in Scripture that any early Christian had this Abrahamic covenant with all of this wealth as we hear about today. Guys and girls, this is a false doctrine. From the pits of hell, it's a false doctrine. Christians or anyone listening to me, when it comes to doctrines or teachings of the Bible that you hear, you must be careful about the ones that you believe. My brother was just telling me what, the other day, my brother in the Lord, I don't have any physical brothers, I have a, brothers in the Lord, was just telling me the other day that he was talking to a woman on Facebook who, who had a disbelief in God, and the reason she did was because she had had an experience with God. She came to God, she started to love God, but then fell into a health and wealth church, and it destroyed her faith. What a shame. What a shame. If you hear anything about the Bible, please listen to me. Please open your ears, ladies and gentlemen, Christians, heathen, I don't care what you are, purple monkeys, whatever you believe yourself to be. If you hear anything about the Bible, especially today, guys, the Bible says we're in the end times today. And we have never been more in the end times than we're in the end times right now. So especially today, you need to go and check it out for yourselves to see if what you hear is true. Jesus Christ warned of many who would come in his name even and deceive many. And if Jesus Christ warned of deception to come, it is guaranteed. You can take it to the bank. You can take it to the bank. People, read your Bibles for yourself. And ask God, as you have the scriptures in your hands, as you're about to open it, as you're about to read it, ask God, God, please help me to understand your word. Please, God, teach me what you want. I do this. I do this myself. God, please help me to know what you want me to understand out of this. Because in my physical mind, I can't understand the things of God. It's got to be by the Holy Spirit of God. 
So please, 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 please ask God to help you and reveal the Word of God to you. Uh, And especially, one of these biblical teachings, especially today, that people, by inspiration of the devil, have twisted is how people are truly saved and how people can come to be truly born again. And so uh, what I mean by that is how people come to be able to go to heaven. This is what I'm talking about. And this teaching in our world today is one of the most corrupted teachings of all of the Bible. Uh, wow, the Bible says many are going to go to heaven. In fact, all will go to heaven. You may be going, oh, Pastor Ed, that's not in the Scripture. You better believe it is. But not everybody's going to stay. Everybody will go to be judged. Because that's where God is. He's in His holy heaven. But not everyone will stay. This teaching that's been twisted on salvation is the teaching of a simple belief only. Just a simple, well, I believe in Jesus. Well, I have a belief in Jesus Christ. Just believe on the Lord and you will be saved. Yet, in and of itself, a simple head belief. Like I believe that uh, the stars in the sky or the moon or my cars outside or my home or whatever. Those beliefs in Jesus, that kind of belief in Jesus Christ, the Bible doesn't say that that will save anybody. This is a false doctrine. In their teaching of them, uh, just telling people that a simple head belief will save their souls, they leave out that Jesus Christ said that this belief that saves us, it is a belief that saves us, but it's a special belief. It's not just any belief that saves us. And Jesus Christ tells us of it in John 7. 38, he says this, He who believes in me, as the scripture has said. Notice that that wasn't just, oh, just believe in me how you want. (laughs) Just have whatever kind of belief in me that, that you want. Jesus said, he who believes in me, as the scripture has said. Then, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That means that he who believes in him, according to what the scriptures say about him and who he is, That one is the one that will be born again. Notice it wasn't just a head belief of some Jesus Christ sitting on a throne in heaven. Oh, that's nice. Oh, I believe in Jesus. It was a special type of belief. Another, we get this. There's another aspect to that belief. Apostle Paul says of this saving belief, Romans 10, 9. Listen to the type of belief here. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, so that's good, that's really good, but just the confession of the Lord Jesus is not all we're talking about for a saving belief here. He goes on to say, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. You shall be saved. Notice how it wasn't a belief of the mind, just another intellectual note that you put into your mind. It was a belief in your heart, which is different than a belief in your mind. And it was not only a belief in your heart, but it was a belief that God raised him from the dead, acknowledging that he is the Christ, the savior of the world of all mankind. This is the way of the belief that saves. So just exactly what does it mean to believe in Jesus Christ as Scripture has said, as He says, and to believe in Him with all your heart to have the saving belief as the Apostle Paul just said in Romans 10? Well, first, Scripture says very clear, you must believe that He is God's only begotten Son, that He is God's Christ, the Savior of the whole world, not just one of the many ways to salvation as people that are religious in the world believe. And and with that comes repentance of the way you think of Him and turning to the way He really is, right? An acceptance of this truth of Him, of Him as the only begotten Son of God, the only Christ, the only Savior of the world. And what that looks like is, is so if you're a Muslim, or if you're a Buddhist, or Hindu, or atheist, or, or Rastafari, or whatever you believe yourself to be a purple monkey sitting on the moon, I don't even care. Your first step of this belief, of this saving belief, is you need to stop thinking of Jesus Christ as just one way to heaven, or just a good prophet, 
or just some great teacher that came and you must acknowledge him. Repent in your mind of who you think he is and turn to the knowledge that he is the Christ, the Lord of glory, the only begotten son of the living God. That's number one. So what does this look like? Uh, Jesus Christ tells us how to believe and what this all looks like. How we eat. Okay, so let's say we believe in that. How do we treat that information? What do we do with that information that he is the Christ or the only begotten Son of God? Well, Jesus Christ tells us in Matthew chapter 16, he goes on in verses 24 and 25, then Jesus said to his disciples, which obviously they believed in him, if anyone desires to come after me, which, okay, they've got the belief. They've got that they know that he's Jesus Christ. He's the Son of God. He's the only begotten you know, Christ. He's the one, the Savior of the whole world. They got it. Now, Jesus says, well, here's what you do with that information, with that belief in me. He says, let that one who desires to come after me, let him deny himself. And what is he saying? And he goes on in verse 25 to say, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whatever loses his life for my sake will find it. Deny himself. Well, you see, the Bible's pretty clear on the fact that when we're born, and as we grow up, and as we are people and human beings in this world, we actually have lordship and rulership over our own lives. We are, as people I've heard it said, the captain of our own ship. We are the one behind the wheel, and we are driving our lives, and we are the ones that rule our own lives. We are the Lord of our own lives. That's how we're born. It's, it's called rebellion to God. God is the Lord. He is God. He wants to be our God, our personal God. People are their own gods. So the first step of salvation, the only, it, it stops and ends with this, is how you want to get saved, have uh, acknowledge and, and, and surrender and submit your mind to the fact that Jesus Christ isn't just some person, some, um, some mythic figure or, or some mythological figure, that he is the Christ, the only begotten Son of God. Then, with that knowledge, he says, then deny yourself. Yeah. Which means, take yourself off the throne of your life Amen. and put me on there. Right. Submit and surrender your life. Whoever loses his life, his earthly life, for my sake, because of me, will find it. The one who decides to submit, the one who decides to surrender their lives unto Christ, not just have a belief in him. This is the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. This is the saving belief of Jesus Christ. Unless you believe in him with all your heart, as the scripture has said to him, and this heart of him, uh, turn and repent to make him the Lord of your life personally, the Christ of God, the Savior of the whole world, and yours, and no, nothing else can save you. Nothing else. I don't care how good of a person you are. I don't care how much religion you follow. I don't care how spiritual you think you are or, or how good you think you are. Well, you know, God's a just God. He'll judge me on my good deeds. Yes, he will judge you on your good deeds. And those good deeds, according to God, were no good deeds at all. His deeds are good. Our deeds are worthless. The only thing we could do to come to have salvation is believe in him, as the scripture has said, and then repent and make him the Lord of our lives and surrender to Him, and submit our lives to Him, and stop running. Yes. Stop running. Amen. Stop fighting. Stop living in rebellion to God by being your own Lord, and turn to Him, and run into His arms, Amen. and give up. Wave the white flag of surrender, and say, Jesus Christ, please, I need you. I, I don't know, I'm sorry. I know I'm my own Lord. I want to give that you. I want you to be my Lord. Yeah. You, Lord, I want you to be my master. You, Lord, come to me. Please, Lord, I'm here. Take me. I want to be your servant. Then the Bible says that ye shall be saved. So he's waiting for you. What are you waiting for? You being the own Lord of your life, me when I was the own Lord of my life, I ruined my life. I lived in ruin. I live in destruction. But now, I live in peace. 
Now I live with a security of eternal life. Now I live in joy. Now I live and I know that I know that I know that when I die for sure, I will go to heaven and I will be with my Lord forever. Don't you want that? Please come. Surrender today. Fall down on your knees. Turn to Christ and live. Let's pray. Thank you so much, Lord God, for your love for us. Thank you so much, Lord God, for your grace and for your mercy and, and for everything, all the good and many promises, Lord God, that you give in your word. But Lord, we must also never forget, Lord God, that those promises that you give in your word, Lord God, they are not just for anybody that they're received just because it's they will accept, they will just have them. Lord, we have to turn to you, Lord. Your promises are for your sons and your daughters, spiritual sons and spiritual daughters, Lord God. Your your promises can be for everybody, but not everybody's going to turn to you, Lord God, to get those promises. So, Father God, please help people to make that decision today, to turn to you, to to commit their lives to you, Lord, to submit their lives to you, Lord God, and and with take themselves off the throne of their lives and put you on, Lord God, so that all your promises can apply to them, Lord God, so that you can adopt them in because you you won't force them, Lord God. You won't force them, not one of them. They have to come freely as a relationship is a two-way street, Lord. It's not just a one. So we thank you, Lord God, and we praise you, Lord God, and we pray you'd even help people to make that decision today, Lord God, to fall on their faces, Lord God, before you and cry out to you and and commit their lives to you, Lord God. The cross before me, the world behind me, God. Please help them. Help them to see your love. Help them to see your goodness. Help them to see your grace that although they don't deserve it, as none of us deserve it, Lord God in heaven, you offer it anyway. Please, God, bring people to you. Bring people to Jesus Christ with this message. Please, God, bring people to Christ with the saving belief in you not the belief that the religions of the world have made up, Lord God, because that's not going to save anybody. They're not going to save anybody. We love you and we praise you, God, and we thank you. And we ask these things in the precious and powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.